This is the second half of a two-part special exploring the Nephilim and their relationship to modern occultism. If this is your first time listening or you're just tuning in, I recommend you jump back an episode so you can start at the beginning of our discussion, or little about this episode's going to make sense. Previously on Modern Witch. The Nephilim have always been, the, the few times that I've, I've worked with the Nephilim and investigated the Nephilim deeply, the Nephilim, they, they come in like gangbusters. I think that was a type of visitation that is, I won't say intentional from another civilization, but I think it has intention behind it, whether it be divinity or whether it be from a individual consciousness. I think it's more complicated than that. I think that there's a cycle. I think beings that start off as earthly and physical go through a process and, and kind of ascend to something that's different, something that we'll think, we'll say higher, even though there's a valuation in that word that I think is, is false. And then spend some time being an energy being and kind of traipsing around and being free of flesh and stuff. But after a while, you, you miss having a good fuck. She was a big believer that humanity received it from a far intelligent race that, you know, was not of this world. So that was one of the first little seeds I got early on in my 20s of like, oh, serious people, you know, take this as a serious idea. So I think some of our systems of occultism and, and that type of work. And of, of holy blood or divine blood that runs through mankind. Does it run through all of mankind or only some of mankind? Is it equally distributed? Is it not equally distributed? Um, you know, we can we can trace most all of mankind to some startlingly small areas not that long ago. What is that? It's a little bag made from the skin of a toad. Doesn't matter. She, she's tampering in dark sided stuff. Yet in our own supremely rational time, there has been a dramatic rebirth of the ancient arts of witchcraft. You're listening to the Modern Witch Podcast with Devin Hunter. The Myth of the Witch Power. When consciousness found its way to our planet, our ancestors were slowly taking their first steps into the light. They hunted and gathered, they fought to survive the wilds of an untamed world, and over time, they began to form families and tribes. Diana, the star goddess, looked upon them with excitement, just as a gardener looks upon the first flowers of spring. In these times, humanity had not forsaken the spirits in the land or the power they possess, but lived in harmony with them. She saw how they suffered, and saw that as they did, so she too suffered so she convened with the first spirits of creation. Go forth and teach them of me, their celestial mother. Give them fire and tools and show them the way to me. In little time it was decided that mankind would begin the great exodus out of the shadows and into the light of consciousness. Like falling stars, the great warriors and teachers of Diana, known to some as angels or fairy, came to earth and taught humankind the way of cooperation and survival. We learned to make tools and build fires. We learned how to read the stars and enchant the earth under our feet. We learned to fashion metals and to commune with the mother of creation. For generations we thrived side by side, learning from the great teachers of Diana and 
Over time, they began to love us as children, some eventually falling in love with us. Soon the lines blurred and we began to mix. Daughters of humankind became pregnant and gave birth to the beings known as the Nephilim, the ancestors of the witches. The Nephilim were a race all their own, existing in our world and in others. They had the willpower of a human and the might of a cosmic spirit, but with little desire to fuse the two. Soon humanity became jealous and turned the magic and technologies upon their teachers. War began to break out among man and Nephilim alike, and the world quaked. The goddess saw what was being done, that the worst of man and the worst of angel had mixed, that weapons were being forged instead of unity, and she called her great spirits to action. She separated the realms and annihilated the Nephilim who went to war with humankind. The remaining Nephilim vowed to stay and guide us through our evolution and growth. Over the following generations, their descendants would become known as witches, and the power given to them by their ancestors, the witch power. That is an excerpt from my book, The Witch's Book of Power, narrated by James Anderson Foster. You can find it everywhere books are sold and now on Audible and iTunes. The Nephilim continue to be a topic that provides several rabbit holes for us to follow. As with part one, I am joined by Jason Miller, Michelle Boulanger, and Christopher Pinzak, three leading voices in the occult to discuss our connection to these beings and what the connection means about everything we know. If you're interested in learning more about them, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for the exciting conclusion to our discussion, at least for now. Part 2. Evolution So, what role do you feel the Watchers play in our modern lives as occultists? You know, one of the things that we do, obviously, we invoke our, our Watchers uh, during ritual. What are they doing? Like, what what's the point of that? Well, I guess it all depends on how you describe Watchers. You know, there's the four Watchers of the Watchtowers, you know, the Guardians, and... I had an old mentor, an old teacher talked about how they were like the lords of karma. You know, and that's a theosophical term and it kind of gives a nod or a reference to the you know, Eastern traditions. But the idea they were watching every act of magic and recording every act of magic and rebalancing or addressing every act of magic. And that's why we called them to witness what we're doing. Um, and other forms of magic and witchcraft, we ask them to protect the circle, we ask them to guide and everything. But there's this almost sense that they're ever present. You know, if you get into the books of Enoch, you know, and the whole idea of the, the fall of the angels and the, the various versions of the books of Enoch, sometimes some of them are described as being chained up in mountains. And this idea that they're living within the land or they're ever present or permeating through the land. And that's why they're present. You know, if we think of them as individual consciousnesses, why they can be anywhere and whatever we call them. 
know, there's also obviously the stellar nature to them because a lot of times the watchers are aligned to the four uh, fixed signs of the zodiac, you know, being Taurus and Leo and Aquarius and Scorpio, which also relates to these whole shifting of the ages if we think Atlantis sunk during the age of Leo and we're entering the age of Aquarius. So I, I find that interesting. Um, but in the end, from an occult perspective, I think there's a deep resonance, at least for me, between what we call the watchers and the Nephilim and the Grigori. Um, with the fairy races. Hebrew, you know, we have a whole mythology men. that the light of they Venus descends like and all the, the light that comes with Venus that descends into the earth essentially brings the fairy races, what we often call the elder races. I equate them in the New Age traditions with the Lemurians. You know, so a lot of times the Lemurians are described as androgynous, non-human, can walk backwards and forwards, one-eyed. And when you look at that literally, it seems very monstrous. But when you think of some of the imagery we have of the enchanted realm of the Fae and giants and cyclopses and the idea of not being limited necessarily by gender, at least initially, and then we have almost this kind of breakdown of fairy into a very polarized fairy kings and fairy queens and fairy courts and, you know, kind of a plethora of big and tall and short and, and tiny and, you know, all the extremes and everything in between expressed in fairies um, from a... a channeled source that's probably one of the most influential things on my magic and it has nothing to do with witchcraft and it's it's an interesting interesting source for a lot of us that are healers there was a series of books um, by someone who channeled or went by the name of gurudas and it was primarily books on flower essences gem elixirs and uh, magical herbalism or, or esoteric herbalism um, and strangely enough at the very last pantheacon that we're all at somebody who worked with gurudas came up to me at the end of my healing ritual and was like, you know, just because I mentioned Gurudas at the the lecture and, and it was so surprising because it's just it seems like something from the 70s that I'm I'm somewhat disconnected from and how would I think I'd meet somebody who was involved in it. But it was somebody who actually helped write down some of those channeling sessions. And it was crazy. Like it was it's you know, it's all the things I love and hate about channeled material, but it was basically a question and answer. Um, and Gurudas, I believe, was channeling St. John of the Cross, and how St. John of the Cross would know any of this, who knows, but you know, he's tied into those Akashic records, and he would describe the evolution of minerals and plants in terms of the Lemurian and Atlantean story, and why they were brought about, and what healing properties were infused in them to address things both in the past and what they foresaw the world would need in the future. And as crazy as it sounds, it is arguably the most accurate book on flower essences um, that I have ever went through. And it's and it's super esoteric. So if you're into magic, it would be very helpful. But from which flower essence cures physical problems um, to just weird information that when you put into practice just turns out to be, you know, so, so accurate. So most people I know who are professional flower essence practitioners, if they've had access to that book, they usually love it and they can they can see the truth in it, even though it seems crazy. Once you put it into use, it, it really works. Um, and the whole story they painted was that essentially the Lemurians and the early Atlanteans were beings of light. And they, you know, shepherded as gardeners, this beautiful garden of patterns of light that eventually grew into the plants and animals and mineral structures that we know today. And so this elder race that predates humanity and all the witchcraft traditions talk about how the fairies were this elder race that predates humanity were kind of the gardeners. And then by the time humanity evolved on some level, they descended in deeper into the earth. They recreated a world within the earth, but they sort of left the mantle to be the caretakers of the gardeners to humanity or to the witches or to the magicians. 
And I think some of our, our Atlantean abuse stories or our flood stories or our battles with the watchers and things like that are, are really tales about, you know, how we fucked that up or how we weren't really mature enough for that responsibility or we didn't understand it. And uh, we're given this, you know, great, great job to do to participate in. And because we see ourselves as separate, we weren't able to fully participate in the way that the elder race was. So when I work with entities like when we've invoked the watchers that are not the four quarters but you know when we talk about the nephilim when we talk about the grigori they're teaching spirits they often appear to me to be within the land within the hills within the mountains you might think of the largest of the fairies are like the titans um, but the titans not necessarily just a greek mythology but like the local land spirits that we have well what is the equivalent the larger body of those land spirits that are the tectonic plates and not just the tectonic plates, but like the currents within the ocean, I think, have a consciousness. And the different zones within the atmosphere that cause the jet streams, I think they have a consciousness. I think these bigger, bigger geological entities that are infused with consciousness, but also deeply permeating the, the planet itself, I think of as this elder race. I think of these watchers because they're all around us. And I think they're waiting for us to, you know, be those teachers and be those mentors. I think part of the fall, part of the flood, part of the battle, whatever metaphor you want to use, um, was us not listening or not being ready or having the hubris that we couldn't take on the teachings just because they withdrew doesn't mean they don't still have things for us. And a lot of those conflicts, even the stories of conflicts between humans and fairies, you know, are that that story of us not really listening, not being in tune and really them trying to address that imbalance and us not listening to it. So when I invoke the Watchers or when I invoke the Grigori, it's about teaching. We've done rituals to the specific Grigori named in the, the Book of Enoch and look at their specialty and say, can you help me out with this, particularly, you know, things like herbalism. Um, you know, we've done kind of general things of, you know, what are the, the deep fairies of this land? What is the consciousness of this mountain? What can you kind of share with me and what can I share with you? to restore reciprocity and, and readdress this imbalance that humanity has. Cause you know, even when we have so many, so many people on the planet and so few of us trying to address that. And even those of us who are addressing it are living in a culture that still contributes to that imbalance. How do we, how do we shift things um, to, a, to a place of better balance? So I'm usually looking at them as teaching spirits, guiding spirits, healing spirits, but also the sense of, how can we enter both reciprocity and how can we kind of receive and give back with them? I think that's an important part for me and not just like the fairy offerings. And um, although I think those are important things, but you know, what systemic things can I do in my life that redresses this imbalance between humanity and the elder races and of nature? Do you believe that we, so you don't believe we've had physical experiences with these, these beings. You think it's all a spiritual shamanic place. No. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's I, do it. I don't necessarily believe that they have descended in little metallic ships and have technology that we would recognize as technology. Um, but I do believe that we've had incarnate interactions, or I do believe that we can interface with them in an in-between plane that is very physical. Um, just like if, let's say, you know, as a magical practitioner, you're walking in the woods and you may go through an arch of trees, or you may, um, if you know how, kind of pierce the veil and, and kind of 
enter layer of the ether, I guess is the best way to put it. So you're still physically moving, but you're being you're perceiving a whole different level of, of reality. So you could be interfacing with things um, that precipitate a connection or a body or an interface for them that may not have a physical origin in the way that we do. But it doesn't mean you're not having a physical experience with them, but you might not be on the consensus level of reality that everybody else in your home and your city and your town is on. Um, I've had, uh, I don't think I've ever talked about this. I had one experience early on in my witchcraft uh, training and I don't know, um, I would say it's the most visceral physical experience that I have had and it has guided me in good and bad ways through much of my practice um, and being open-minded about things. And so it was not a shamanic journey. It wasn't, it, it may be a visualized, but it, it was, it with the interface of it was so real bordering on hallucination where I thought I was going mad. Um, but I do truly think I was physically having a conversation with an entity. If somebody else walked into the room, would they have been able to see it? You know, I don't know. Nobody else walked into the room. Um, but I, I had an interaction with something when I was in the music business, had just had kind of my basic training in witchcraft with Lori Cabot and uh, went to Los Angeles. And there were crazy drinking and crazy drugs. And I think at the time I tried to chalk it up to those things, but it's such still a vivid memory of an encounter with what I would describe as an, an alien intelligence and how it spoke to me. And, and But I think the big part of, of our consciousness and to kind of get back to your original premise of the question um, is that you only have, going back to language, I think language is a huge part of it. And you need a certain level of um, interfaceable common tongue. And I think the common tongue between us and any necessarily non-physical incarnate entity, it's, they're not going to speak a language in the way that we speak with syntax and grammar and vocally. I think our language is metaphor and myth and symbolism. Um, and so right around when I had this experience was the first time I started getting into the Zachariah Sitchin stuff. And I just read The Twelfth Planet and that sort of blew my mind. And I was kind of blowing it off as, OK, that's not, you know, that can't possibly be real. Um, and I don't know if it is or not. I don't think that really matters on the experience, but that became part of my language base to have an interface with something that I would describe as alien. And by alien, I mean, if we want to get old occultist kind of terminology, is it sublunar? Because if it's sublunar, it's part of the kind of Gaian matrix. And if it's, it's you know, above the lunar sphere, then it kind of gets into the cosmic and literally gets into the more alien. And if it gets outside of its origin from our solar system, then it definitely is alien to us. Um, and I think spirits, entities, intelligences, you know, interface with us from all those different planes. So when we think of the alien abduction experience and relate it to fairy abductions, I think there's some crossover and I think there's some that is not. And the way that I always kind of differentiate it, and this is, could be totally artificial, it's just the way I tend to look at it, um, is this idea that um, when we look at the interface with other intelligences and other entities, you know, they're going to they're going to use this language that we have. So for so much time, we had the language of folklore and we had the language of mythology. And even if it was in a post-Christian era, you know, of the church trying to explain what fairies are in the context of Catholicism, whatever it may be, people also had the language of nature. They walked in their forests, they tended a garden. They had a much more rural pastoral. And I think that really plays into the early New England stuff. Like, you know, some people make an argument that there's no fairies in America because, you know, well, we don't have those same stories. Well, you have those fairy stories in, in New England. New England really kind of had the longest time in America, the closest to like the pastoral living scope of, of England with the colonists. 
So I think that was part of the vocabulary. We have the Industrial Revolution, and then from the Industrial Revolution, we start to have the World Wars, and we have the formation of nuclear power and nuclear bombs, and television, I think, is a huge part, and moving picture movies, and the whole way we relate to language and image and sound and context and story all kind of change with that. So there's a lot less people as time has gone by, and particularly in our day and age now, who are walking in the forest and have that chill or feel like they've passed through a gateway in some way or are wondering, oh, there's a face in the tree. Could that possibly be talking to me? And we have more people having those experiences in their head through the television and through the movie screen. And that's why I think things that have a great archetypal mythology have been so popular, like things like Star Wars, whether you love it or hate it, it kind of goes through that Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. You know, it really kind of speaks in, you know, a storybook, almost kind of King Arthur type of view to things. People could latch on to that because they weren't learning a lot of the old stories as a part of their culture and as a part of their history. So Star Wars and Star Trek and Flash Gordon and all these kind of different different stories that engaged us sort of become the new mythology. And so we don't have an interface for, particularly in America, we don't have a lot of mounds that we have associated with fairies the way they, they might have in England and parts of Europe. So we don't have a context to say, go here and you, you will interface with this type of spirit. So we had to start using the imagery that we had. And so, you know, we couldn't conceptualize spiritual entities moving through. It wasn't vogue for people into science fiction to think about angels. You know, so it becomes metallic little flying saucers. It was originally unidentified flying objects. Identified flying objects does not mean flying saucers, but that somehow got converted into flying saucers and metal craft and combustion engines and thrust. And then they start doing things that defy our laws of physics. So they can't be that, you know, but it's hard for the average person to kind of wrap themselves around, you know, th those details. So it's just a flying saucer. It's just a spaceship to them. And that becomes the context. I have found in doing healing work with people who've had abduction scenarios and having my strange encounter in Los Angeles with what I, I describe as an, an alien intelligence, um, that there's things, the more distant they are from the Earth terrestrial experience, the more alien they, they present to us. And I think a lot of our alien mythology and science fiction will use that imagery for us. And I think there's some aliens people encounter um, that are just different forms of terrestrial spirits that have been here probably longer than humans. They're still non-human intelligences, but I think they're much more woven into our, our consciousness and they're woven into the planet. So they present in ways that are less alien to us. Like there was a big um, thing in the, the, I want to say 60s and 70s, um, of particular aliens, you know, coming through channeled material and the drawings and the descriptions of them were very Scandinavian. You know, they were the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very tall, very pale, um, beautiful, but somewhat asexual. Uh, and you could dress them up as the Lord of the Rings elves, which, you know, are very much like the she, the people of the hills, like one of the oldest images we have of the fairy races. But it was very contextualized in a way that humans could understand. And then you have some people who have alien abduction experiences that are very monstrous, you know, and are very difficult for them to understand and not even demonic because they could almost understand that, but very nonlinear and very cold or very insect-like sometimes. Um, and I think those are ways that the common language to present is trying to show us that these are, are, are interfaces, trying to show us that these are alien consciousnesses. Like my encounter in Los Angeles was very alien, was very reptilian insect in that kind of classic sort of way, but it did not feel familiar to any of the other spirits that I worked with. 
So when we think of the Grigori that we know, you know, from a biblical context or from a Sumerian context or, you know, from a, a theosophical context, um, I think they've been here for a long time and I think they're interwoven with us. And so when you describe your experiences writing the Book of Spirits, that they were very accessible to you. I think they're part of our story and I think they've been interwoven with occultism and witchcraft and, you know, that that current, you know, of consciousness where I think there's other things visiting us. And I don't know if this is true or not, but some of my teachers have said that in the, the visitation has increased. And I think entities that are not from our zone of consciousness that are beyond the lunar sphere um, have taken more and more interest in us for whatever reason. And I think people who have those encounters you know, clothe them in the most alien experiences. I think the, the unidentified flying object that you never have personal contact with, I think is something that is something a little bit beyond. And that's why it's never able to make it personal. When I look at like the Whitley Stribler, you know, alien gray, dark eyed, you know, anal probe type stuff, you know, uh, when you look at that, is that the fairy abduction in the classic sense? Maybe, I don't know. I think for some people that there's often a description of almost two distinct phenomenon. And one, although it's invasive, ultimately comes across to be more beneficial or neutral. And there's one that comes across as much more malevolent. And I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if that's, you know, the way we paint it and something we don't understand we perceive as malevolent or, you know, something we do understand we perceive as healthy and, and it could be neither of those things. But I, I do think, you know, it's the language and the mythology that really plays into how we we process these things. And it's the language and mythology that we have and we don't have those stories to access. It's, it's almost like we don't have the full vocabulary to interface. And I think a lot of these entities were used to a body of lore that humanity, for the most part, has kind of abandoned in the last hundred years or so. Yeah. Okay, I have one quick question. Or I have two questions and one quick story roll, and then I'll let you go. Um, so when I was, sorry, a couple of years ago, I was at the store and I had, you know, I'm obviously a big sci-fi nerd. I love all my alien stuff, all galore, but I've never really believed that um, we were necessarily being visited and, you know, those things. I, I'm Mr. You know, give me some evidence kind of guy. So I had a client come in and it was, she had one of the, you know, the usual, oh, I don't feel like I belong here kind of, of stories. But, you know, her voice was really raspy in this very kind of strange way. And uh, and it was just natural. It was just how she grew up. And she didn't smoke or anything. She had this really deep voice for a woman. And when I tuned into her, it felt like space. Like what I imagined space to feel like. Just this void, this cold ongoing kind of nothingness and it was the first time as a psychic that i actually came like really face to face with a human being that didn't come from the same place everybody else had come from like i mean there was no question about it whatever made up her you know her soul dna or whatever the fuck it was not the same thing that I was used to seeing, you know, and dealing with on a regular basis. And it totally changed my mind and set me off on this whole thing. So as you're, you were speaking, I just really remembered the story just sort of bubbling up in my mind of, of, yeah, yeah, this, this is, this thing's going on. Um, which leads me to my next question. And that is, do you feel that there are, in reading your work, I, I feel like I know what the answer is, but do you feel that there are people or kind of like avatars 
that come down and help to usher in these ages, you know, this, these ages of wisdom. You know, I think of, I often think of Buddha, I think of Confucius, and I think of like Socrates and how they all lived within this certain amount of time, you know, within like a hundred years of each other. And they brought in all of this just new way of thinking and new way of approaching life. And, and so I think of those people as being like masters and, and the ascended masters. Is that what we're talking about here with, with, um, the idea of, of ages of consciousness, you know, being kind of brought to us, or, or be, uh, sent to earth, so to speak. Are there people who are like the avatars for this? Or is that a separate thing? Um, how do you look and, and feel about those things? That's a great question. So I think um, what has evolved in my own personal cosmology and, and kind of what I teach is a, a mixture of witchcraft and ceremonial magic with theosophy. In theosophy, um, there's this idea of us, and I even hate using this word, but a spiritual hierarchy. Um, and in that spiritual hierarchy, there's three beings that kind of oversee, well, there's a multitude of beings that oversee, but there's three specific jobs. Um, and it really relates to a lot of the teachings that I've kind of connected with through what we call the three rays of witchcraft and focusing on the concepts of power and love and wisdom. Um, and so essentially, there's three offices. And these offices in different times and ages can be filled by different entities. Sometimes those entities evolve up through the consciousness of humanity and, and you know, from a normal human to becoming enlightened, to becoming something the next stage beyond enlightened. Um, and sometimes there's consciousness that kind of descends down from a higher level. Um, but it's interesting, it's the roles that are the most important. And history doesn't really have a clear, if you're going to ask me, you know, well, well, who filled these roles in each of these ages? I don't have a clear answer for that. It's actually something I'm kind of reflecting a lot on lately. I'm, I'm a bit fascinated with the story of Orpheus right now, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, but it's this idea that these three roles um, relate to the three primary rays and relate to the shifts or the guidance of moving civilization. So the in theosophy, they call the, call the Lord of the first ray or the, the master of the first ray the Manu. And the Manu is kind of like the Adam of Hindu mythology, kind of like the first man. But the office of the Manu um, is sort of like the, the ruler of the world, you know, kind of like the mythologies of the world kings or the world sovereigns. We use the image in the temple of the sovereign because it's, you know, gender neutral, but it can be king or queen. But the idea of the one that's kind of guiding the evolution of the continental plates and guiding the evolution of, you know, all the creatures, not just the human level, but it's kind of taking care of the planet on that level of consciousness. Um, the second one is the one that humanity is the most familiar with, and it's often called the planetary teacher. And in the whole age of Pisces, that was said to be Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and the idea of the planetary teachers for everyone usually teaches through story, usually teaches through imagery and poetry and things that everybody has access to. It's not so esoteric. So where the, the first ray and the sovereign or the Manu is almost doesn't not I won't say doesn't care about humanity, but doesn't interface with humanity as much um, as more of that kind of secret kingship within the land or within the hill kind of mythology. The planetary teachers, that one who goes out and like shares with the world. This is what the, the way of interfacing could be. And this is what you know makes a good human. And this is, you know, this is the new new formula of the aeon to connect with the divine. Um, and so Christ is probably one of those best examples, although people might look at Buddha or some of the other figures are talking about. The one I've been most obsessed with lately, because I took a class with Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki, and I just kind of came across my notes again and started ruminating, was Orpheus. Um, and she teaches that Orpheus was the planetary teacher in the age of Taurus. And the whole idea of the hymns of Orpheus and the song and the music and everything was the way he taught his cult, the mysteries. 
um, because the age of Taurus was very sensual and was very physical and was very kinesthetic, you know, so the idea of music and dance and that type of feasting and and celebration as part of religion, as the mysteries, was a a big part of it. So I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Um, And then in theosophy, the third ray, the office they call is the Maha Kohen, which means the great master, the lord of civilization. And these would be the figures like Thoth and Osiris. These would actually be the figures of like the Grigori kind of descending and giving technology or, you know, giving agriculture, giving weapons making and makeup and meteorology and herbalism and you know, all those good things that they did that would fall under that last ray. In the Temple of Witchcraft, we associate that third ray with sorcery. And it's, you know, the idea of the sorcerer or the witch. Um, if we look back in old temple traditions, like in, in the Middle East, we might think of the, the king and the prophet or the king and the priest. Um, I learned a whole teaching about why, and, and this will sound really offensive to people from Christianity, I don't mean to be offensive, but um, one of the reasons why maybe Christianity has gone off the rails, although I think all religions eventually go off the rails at some point at the end of their age, um, was because that there was supposed to be two holding it from that perspective. There was supposed to be a, a monarch, you know, the king, and there was supposed to be either the priest or the prophet. And when John the Baptist was killed, that formula was broken, and Jesus had to assume both roles. From a theosophical model, it's not just two roles or two pillars, it's three, almost like a tripod. And the idea that there are these beings of consciousness behind the scenes that are guiding the evolution from these three perspectives. It doesn't mean they're controlling us. It's not an Illuminati conspiracy that they're out to take over our minds or anything like that. It's almost like the subtle saints or the saints of saints, you know, using the idea of the ascended masters and the mighty dead. These would be the ascended masters to the ascended masters, kind of guiding the whole pattern. Um, in ways that we might not be able to understand as humans or see, but that kind of three-pronged approach. So in my work, we think of it as the sovereign, the seer, and the sorcerer, just because I like, you know, alliteration. Um, but it, it kind of connects to these different things. So when I, I look at those those processes, I think there's an intelligence behind that. I don't know if it's always an alien kind of consciousness that descends to teach, but that's not outside of my world of possibility. When you look at all the avatars of, of Vishnu, you know, in the tale of Krishna, and, and, you know, you look at the tales of Jesus of Nazareth, whether you love him or hate him, and you look at Buddha, and you, like you said with Socrates and Plato, I think there's a a rise of some type of, of epiphany of information. And even in the time in which it comes about, it might not have its full effect. And I think those are some of the things that shift the great ages. You know, if we look at the, the tale of the age that we're going into right now, and I'm not saying that they're enlightened by any stretch of the imagination, but I think of the work of figures like Dion Fortune and Aleister Crowley. There's a great book out that called them the, the prophet and the Shakti of the New Aeon. And it was kind of like a biography of, of different points in their lives and how they parallel together. But I think they both brought about a work to kind of usher in the new age. And I don't think they were always necessarily appreciated in the time of their life where that context was understood. Did they have human problems and human foibles? Absolutely. You know, but I think the work that they did really kind of ushered in some of the things that you and I are practicing now as modern witches. You know, so it's it's an interesting way of looking, you know, at that. Are they the, you know, master upon masters of the new age? I don't think so based on their lives, but who am I to judge? Sometimes I think masters come out and they play a role in the world and we might never understood what that role is, but they did their work and then they went back to whatever level they were at. I, I work with um, I work with a spirit named Moloch, and um, all of everybody who's read my books, you've you've heard about Moloch. 
Um, and he, he, uh, identified himself as an angel pretty early on and, um, but made me go looking for it, which was a fascinating thing in itself. But his name, Amalek, obviously comes from, uh, that word that means angel. Um, so it was this interesting thing with, with, with the spirit, cause there was a lot of resistance that I had had to kind of what he was presenting himself to be until he kind of wore me down and I, was just left with that realization that like, well, there's nothing I'm going to do to change what he is, you know, so I just need to listen. Um, and in that, one of the things that he was very clear on um, is that we switch back and forth a lot. So we're, we're kind of always together. We're, we're buddies. Um, and, and, you know, the last lifetime uh, he was incarnate and he was doing his thing. And the one before that, it was me. And we just kind of trade off and, what he explained yeah, that's we, was that's, that's that's how we do it too. That's how we do it too. That's awesome. Okay, yeah. cool. So, but <laughs> what he explained was that the essentially human life, uh, sent you have to be sentient in order to kind of contain all of the energy that we are, whether you know just the the soul's energy if you want to think of it like that. But that human life was a battery, and so you came in, you got you got a recharge because there were there were actual electrical processes and things that were happening that enriched your soul material, and you need that. It's like fuel it's few it's food and then you go off and you go do your own thing and and then you come back when you're needed or when you choose to and you know so on and so forth but he's he was very clear that we you know we have this this in tandem thing that goes on and he's i'm never quite alone and he's never quite alone and and it's this really trippy thing but um so i I feel resonance with with what you're talking about here big time yeah i I mean the the one thing that i can say is without incarnating if it goes for too long they curl into themselves and either go like completely catatonic like there's a degradation of soul that happens and and you know it would be it would be a blessed release if that led to oblivion but all that does is lead to just this 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 being that has curled in on itself and is like caught in a loop of shredded memory and it is the most heart-wrenching painful existence i've ever witnessed any being be caught in Mm -hmm. Um, and so the thing is is certain types of damage and certain types of experiences and certain types of trauma definitely can make it possible that it's that you get that it becomes impossible to incarnate Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's um, that's it's kind of how I understand demons to kind of be birthed, essentially. Um, it's life force that's twisted upon itself and kind of chokes itself off so it can't mm. grow anymore and it's just stuck in a loop. Um, and it's just a denser, heavier. We would identify it as sad or, you know, uh, un- kind of not necessarily in resonance with our own existence uh, because of the way that we vibrate. You know, and I'm totally telling people demons aren't necessarily evil. Right. Like I've met some some angels who were absolute assholes and I've met some demons that were just so kind and sweet, you know, but um, those are the things that usually aren't walking around us. You know, the 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 scary demon when I've had experiences as a as an investigator or even just with clients who come in with things, um, the when I get spooked, it's 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 usually coming from this this perspective of I've I've identified something that feels completely 
backwards to the way that I know and the way that I feel existence. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. demons are that, you know, I always tell people, you know, in a fish tank, you need good and bad bacteria. And if you, you, if you have an influx of the good bacteria, everything's going to die. If you have an influx of the bad bacteria, everything's going to die. You have to have a balance. And that's what angels and demons do. You know, angels are kind of putting things in order and making things happen. And demons are kind of decomposing the, those things. And, you know, it's a cycle. It's a process. And we need all of those things. Um, so when we go and you have one of those experiences where you run into something that feels heavier or it feels lower in vibration or it feels darker, um, you're, you're still witnessing a being, you're still witnessing, uh, you know, life just in a different type of life, you know, and just because it maybe, let's say it's like a, it's carrion doesn't mean that it's evil. You know, we're, we're as beings that are alive, we are programmed to stay away from dead things. Like, you know, that's, there's a reason zombies look the way that they do in our minds and you know, how all of those things developed. We don't want to be around dead bodies. Like that's a thing. It's it's there as a as an animal to you know you stay away from the diseased thing. That's just smart, you know. So it's instinctual that's there. And I feel like a lot of the times those those same impressions that are very instinctive, very intuitive are are programmed into us just on an animal level. And then we go and we have an experience that we can't explain, and our initial urges to run or our initial urges to identify it as something that that is evil. Um, and it's really just coming from that base instinctual place where, you know, people like you and me, we show up and we have to sit with that and make sure that that's actually what's happening. Um, because energy is is different and spirits are are not as easily explained as, as I think we want them to be. Um, and when it comes to these bigger things, these these things like angels and demons, um, we do have so much of a cultural bias that I think really keeps us from being able to understand what's going on. Um, yeah. But digging yeah. through even just the folklore, like there's, again, for me, my path is like my personal experience paralleling, like reading what's been written and like reading between the lines and letting my, I cheat because I know where to look. Like I remember what was written. I remember what cultures, certain things happened in. So I, I try to find what what made it to the record. Um but God, it just it it does irk me that we've gotten so far away from it. If people just read some of the stories and try to read between the lines, what I'm saying is there's clearly a truth behind the veil. And not just, you know, we, we say angels and demons in our culture. Um, in Islamic folklore, it's jinn. And again, if you just look behind the veil, talking about the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the stories we, we, we've collected are part of our shared gnosis. You know, they, those are things that our ancestors or the people who came before us witnessed and experienced. And just because we can look back and say they were uneducated by today's standards doesn't mean that those were invalid experiences. Um, and I think what I'm really turned on by as a psychic right now is that we're having those discussions, you know, where we're starting to go, well, wait a minute, you know, what's, what's really going on here? And is this possibly connected to anything else? And that to me is this really beautiful, beautiful thing to witness. Um, do you feel that uh, when it comes to angels and demons, that um, 
we are going to continue to get more educated? Do you feel like we're we're embracing these things or do you feel like we're we're turning away? Because I think what I'm experiencing is, yes, it's getting easier to talk about them in certain circles, but not necessarily everywhere. Yeah, I think we're on a precipice where in certain circles it's easier to talk about it, but there's... I, I have stood at this crossroads before where we are with our culture, um, where so many things are changing and the world is crumbling around us. And a reaction that I remember from a long time ago is you end up with these little cabals of people who understand the truth and are willing to speak the truth. But the, the more that grows, the more there's usually a push against it. And I hope that this time things break through that sort of natural resistance that, that need to crush and to make these things secret or forgotten. But I think where we are at right now with culture, there's going to be pushback. I, I think we're careening toward another satanic panic, and that scares the hell out of me. Um, because I had so much hope as things moved through the 90s to the 2000s that we were actually getting to a point where some of those veils could be removed, that we could move beyond just telling our truths in stories and in music and in fiction and just go, hey, I see that you are carrying wings of light on your back. Let's talk. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I, I remember when I was, uh, I was maybe 13, 14. No, I was like 13 years old and I had um, come across, it was like a pagan, I think it was on Yahoo back in the day. Um, it was a pagan chat and uh, I met these, these people who became, you know, friends and they were much older. They knew I was young, um, but they were much older. And, and um, I just thought they were cool as hell because they were these, you know, practiced people who were talking to me and so on and so forth. And I remember getting into this really strange discussion one night. And it, it's something that actually really changed and altered the whole course of my practice. Um, because one of them had said, so we've, you know, me and so-and-so have been talking and we, we feel like there's this, um, this thing about you that is, is special like us. And, and I just wanted to talk to you about it. Have you ever heard of the Amara Sutra? And I said, I've never heard of the Amara Sutra. Um, and so he gave me this, this line and, you know, at the time I, of course, who doesn't want to be told they're half God. That's what I was told. Mm -hmm. is that we were all half God. Um, and who doesn't want what 13 year old person doesn't want to hear that. Um, and so, you know, it was really tantalizing. And as I got older, I was like, okay, this is obviously bullshit. And some, some God knows what could have happened. Right. If I would have actually befriended these people and so on and so forth. But there is this, um, this discussion that happened as, as I was leaving that, that group of people that, that has always kind of stuck with me, um, which was this, uh, this concept that um, we were divine, like, I mean, and divine in that you do have this divine birthright. You are connected to something bigger. You are a spirit in a physical existence and um, not everything is as easy to understand as you might think it is. And, you know, I can look back on it now as a, as a responsible adult and go, there's no business these people had talking to me at 13. There was no, you know, that should not have happened. And uh, the world was just, we looked at these things differently, I guess, back then. Um, 
And I wouldn't approach a 13-year-old today and say, hey, by the way, you're half God. Uh, but yeah. there's something there that has stuck with me in that sense. I know it's not I'm not self-aggrandizing. I don't think I'm half God. But I, I that piece that we are divine and it's not as simple as we all want to make it be. It has always stuck with me. And it's been a, a driving force in what I look for uh, when it comes to my occultism and my relationship with the spirit world. And when I walked into the, the Nephilim, and I say walked into them because I, I, it's really what it felt like. I literally ran into one and was like, holy shit. Uh, th- we, all right, we got to talk. Um, I, am, I have been blind. Um, but I ended up having these really intense experiences that reignited that awareness in me that I am part divine. And, and it's not just me. There are, there, we're all part divine. Um, but understanding that in a really primal kind of sense that it, it wasn't just this thing that was inherent inside of me, but it was a birthright. Um, the, the psychic abilities, the the witchcraft, the whatever it is that I was doing um, that was driving me through this preternatural life, those things were all part of my existence. This is why I was here. Um, it, it was life-changing. It was absolutely life-changing. And I feel like my work with Nephilim, that's probably been the, the coolest thing I've gotten out of it personally. And so I was wondering what has been the greatest lesson you've gotten from working with the Nephilim personally, if you, if you feel free to share that. Trust that you actually know what you know before your rational mind engages and says, you can't possibly know that. Like stop telling yourself you don't have a right to what you're carrying. That, that was, you know, I, I, I think I'm, what, 10 years older than you? And and so, like, the, the culture that I was raised in, you just weren't allowed to have your own identity. It was sort of, like, handed to you. I mean, we're, we're both from Ohio, so Midwest. And so, a, as a queer person, an intersex person, a psychic person, like, it's weird that the psychic stuff was more accepted in my family than all the rest of it. Um, totally. I'm totally there but, with you on that, yeah. But culture culturally i was raised to doubt my right to validity to authority somebody else needed to be the one to tell me that i was special or that i was right or that i was what i was like i was given a name i was given a gender i was given a sex and i was given an identity and to push back against that um when i was growing up was not something that you did so for me the 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 biggest revelation of coming to terms with who I am, what I am, where I have come from, what I remember, and what all of that means is accepting I do have a right to those truths. I don't always have to justify them. I certainly don't have to justify them to myself. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. I, I feel a, a really strong resonance with that. And I, I think a lot of people who are listening will too. Um, do you feel that we are in a place? So the Nephilim, I keep, this is, it's a, again, this is my, this is my thing that I'm chewing on right now. Do you feel that we're in a place where we are getting closer to understanding what's really going on, or do you feel like we're starting to just kind of inflate the topic with hot air? I think we're getting closer. I think the only way to get closer is to get over the very natural hesitation. I think pretty much anyone who's actually like looking at, at the real truth here, like I, 
because I've, I've watched so many people. I, I do the same thing of like, I just, I don't want to lay it all out. Like, I don't want to sound, I don't want to, I know that, I know that this sounds like too much. Like I know, right. Oh my goodness. And, and, yeah. and I think one of the things that really I needed to learn as I, as I went along, um, first was that fear to talk about it and to accept it is less about being afraid of sounding crazy. And it's actually more being afraid of being right. Because if this is true, let's just assume what, what you or I or anybody listening who suspects about what you are, where you've been, how long you've lived, anything. How terrifying is it to accept that that's actually objectively true? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your responsibility? Like that's the real source of that fear. So if we can get to a point where we get comfortable enough to at least accept the possibility that this is real and then talk to one another because we are all pieces in one another's puzzle. Not all of us remember everything. Only by dialoguing are we going to be able to get all of the pieces together because everybody went in different directions. Everybody expresses their nature in a different metaphor, in a, a different shade of stained glass, if you will. And we won't have the whole piece. We won't have the whole picture if we don't get over the artificial boundaries and actually communicate. So I think that we are at a point where we're starting to. I'm, I'm incredibly excited about it. Um, this is the most open I've been about this to anybody outside of House Kepler. I mean, I, I, I founded a system around all of the stuff we're talking about right now. Um, and this has been our deep secret oath content. Like, this is what we're talking about. I'm so excited because it was oath, mainly because it was so forbidden to talk about, and we'd gotten so much pushback and so much incredulity from other systems. It just it seemed like it was something that we... We, we couldn't not pursue it. It's, it's such a core of who we are and what we are and how we experience stuff. But we didn't think we would ever see a point where we could talk to people who weren't just a part of this group. But we're there. We're, we're having this conversation. So, yes, I think we're at a point where the door's open. We just have to figure out how to walk through it. In the book of Genesis, it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They created a hybrid offspring who were called the Nephilim or the fallen ones. They're referred to as the giants or the mighty ones. And some believe they were between eight and 15 feet tall. Hello, witches. I just wanted to take a quick break out of the show to tell you about two very important ongoing projects of mine, The Mystic Dream and The Mystic Dream Academy. The Mystic Dream is a spiritual marketplace for all things magical and esoteric, and has been serving our local community here in the California Bay Area for over 30 years. Recently, due to COVID, we had to move from our physical store to an online-only format and have launched a new and improved website with enhanced shopping features. 
If you are looking for witchcraft supplies, signed books, handmade candles, and bath and body, or you are looking for a reliable place for crystals, check out themysticdream.com. You can also find Modern Witch brand products like ritual soaps, condition oils, spell kits, and more, all made by yours truly, only at themysticdream.com and modernwitch.com. Our inventory is constantly updating and new products are added weekly. Again, that's themysticdream.com. If you're looking for a safe and secure place to learn witchcraft, psychic development, spiritual healing arts, and other metaphysical practices online, then you should check out what we are doing over at themysticdreamacademy.com. An online extension to our popular in-person class series, the Mystic Dream Academy is home to the Witch Power Masterclass, which is modeled after my best-selling Witch Power series, Black Rose Witchcraft, which is a 13-month course in traditional witchcraft that over 500 people have already joined, and A Course in Modern Conjure, which is a year-long study in American folk magic and contemporary conjure taught by Chaz Bogan. Use code MAGISTER, that's M-A-G-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout to get your first month of Black Rose free. Once again, that's themysticdreamacademy.com. Link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to this episode. So I do a little research and I show all of these structures around the world. You can go on the web or you can visit them alive and you can say, hey, this had to be done by something that is alien as out of space or with giant beings. And that is what I do in the first part of the book is show these megalithic structures with pictures saying you can't refute them. They had to be built by something other than human beings or even hundreds of thousands of slaves. Something gigantic, something demonic had to be involved in creating and building these megalithic structures. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been, so I've been going down this, um, this rabbit hole and it, because I'm, I personally, um, I have mixed feelings about this whole alien abduction thing. And, um, one of the things is I've been kind of doing my own research and, um, reconciling some of my own weird experiences that I had when I was younger, uh, and trying to figure out, you know, is it possible? Like, could there really be these aliens that are just picking people up and dropping, you know, doing all this stuff? And, um, one thing that kind of, as, as I read the reports of, from, you know, people talking about being abducted, a lot of these experiences sound like they're happening on what we would refer to as the astral. Like they're, right. they're happening on, in a very psychic, psycho-spiritual kind of way. And, and, and most of the time, they're, they're a positive experience. Like the person's coming back and they're saying, oh, I was told by somebody from the Theta Quadrant that Earth needed to start, you know, vacuuming more or whatever. Like it's, it's, it's usually nothing bad. It's usually something that's um, digestible. Um, but then, you know, you get some of the, the scarier stuff where people are talking about, oh, yeah, no, I was inseminated. And um, then I found out I was pregnant two weeks later. And, you know, all of these other things, those things happen. And that is enough to make me go, huh. So I, you know, part of me believes that this is all happening in a very psycho spiritual kind of way, just like we would say shamanism was happening. And to me, that makes those fairy experiences that, you know, the people who lived before us talked about make more sense. Um, but I, you know, I, again, I'm, you know, as I'm doing this research and I'm looking into the ufology and, and the theories and the, the things that a lot of the people in, in that world tend to kind of believe in, 
And as an occultist, I'm I'm totally torn because part of me feels like I can I can from my own personal gnosis kind of place I can say this is my experience, this is what I believe, this is what this feels like to me. Um, but then you have these people who are having these these you know really intense experiences, um, and it's hard to reconcile those things, you know. And, and as an occultist, you know, I would say in the eighties. And and in the '90s, if you went to the the occult section in the in the library or you know in the bookstore, there were books on aliens. That was all yep. just kind of part of the whole thing. And now here we are. Um, and as you said, there's a little bit of crossover. Um, but as those people are getting involved and they're saying, "Oh yeah, I know the Nephilim," and and this is a thing. It's of course their inter- interpretation of Nephilim tends to be a little different than than where we're coming from. Have you have you been privy to any of the the Nephilim alien stuff at all? You know, I, I I have a little bit, and I, as the paranormal community got larger and, and distanced itself more from the magical community, I, I, I have to say I kind of welcomed that distance a little bit, and there, there were a few, like, paranormal podcasts and things that I was on that I was, like, deeply uncomfortable um and so you want to be like you don't want to be like wow those people were weird because i mean look at what we do (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah we're totally weirdos exactly exactly yeah pot calling the kettle black but at the same time um i like i am i am i'm really very i i incorporate as little magical thinking into my world as i possibly can um, so I'm always trying to like get people like think more mechanistically, like think that the world works exactly like everybody else does, except magic is real. Right. But assume that there's not some divine plan that, 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 that every last thing that has happened to you is not in fact a message from the spirit that's out to get you or, or, you know, something like that. Like just think pretty mechanistically. And so when I encounter some people, not all, in the paranormal community, there's like this disconnect. Because as an occultist, you are either uh, the, the person that is at the center of their conspiracy theory. Like, you know, you're you're part of one of these Illuminati groups that knows the truth and won't tell anyone. Or you're a dabbler who has invoked the demons that they then have to come in and heroically exercise or get rid of the ghosts or, you know, or, you know, the alien truth, uh, but you won't tell anyone or or you're. You know, they've got very firm belief in aliens and a whole cosmology of like where they are and whatnot. And so your experiences, they interpret it through their lens. And uh, I suppose all that's fair, but it's not it's not a view that I kind of resonate with. So uh, I don't I have a more limited interaction than I used to when I was growing up and just sort of. You know, in the 80s, before the Internet, everybody that was weird kind of just had to bond together in the community. (laughs) And we were all just weird together, just slightly differently. And now people can 
find the 12 other people in the world that are weird just like you and and double down on whatever your weirdness is uh and that goes for me as well as as them so uh i probably have less exposure than i should have Okay, so my last question is, um, it's hopefully not too much of a doozy, but it might be a doozy. So I feel like we have, we've got two, we have an optimistic view and we have kind of a cynical view about how all of this plays out kind of practically. And I feel like our, our well, let's start with the optimistic view is very Babylon 5. It's very, humanity is on a slow and steady course of spiritual and physical evolution that includes many, you know, setbacks and great advances. And eventually we're going to get there. Eventually we're going to hopefully harmonize and become one with, we'll say, the universe, you know, kind of in, in our own unique special way when we figure that out. Right. And I and I love that, right? I, I, I'm an optimistic sci-fi person myself. I totally get into that. So, you know, the Ascended Masters and these spirits, they're all there to help guide us along this, this path. I can totally appreciate that. But then we have the cynical view, which is that we are this very fragile civilization on a very fragile planet that is kind of at the whim of these influences, good or bad. And we don't necessarily have control over that. And that's really where, like, the conspiracy theories and, and all of that stuff really is kind of bubbling up from, is this idea that, well, they're here influencing us, but we don't know that they're influencing us. And you can't say that something has all of this positive influence and, and is capable of creating all of this positive influence and it not being capable of doing the exact opposite. So my question is this. How do we know if our interactions with this this form of spirit this this idea of the watchers the nephilim the gregory how do we know that it's actually for our benefit and what how do we judge that we don't we don't know if it's for our benefit just like until we actually have the interaction and have the experience and then once the experience is to a certain plateau to be able to evaluate it you know we don't know it's kind of like when you meet somebody and you're making a new friendship or at least having a new relationship, you don't know what it's going to be. Um, and I think us as individuals, when we have individual contact with other intelligences, whether they be of the world or beyond the world or, you know, in the framework that we understand religiously or outside of that framework, we don't know it's good or not um, until we experience it. So kind of like the proof and the pudding is in the eating of it. You know, did ultimately did I get information or have experiences that make me happier or healthier or not, you know, and then do I want to continue putting my energy into this if it's not been helpful or healthy for me or in the ways that it might have been challenging? You know, I, I'm a big believer in things that are challenging that can be stressful at the time can ultimately be good for you. I think that's the whole, you know, initiatory mystery path. But I think, um, you know, you've got to be able to see that perspective of it. You know, so I think in the end, we don't just like we don't know that with any relationship that we get into. I think in the arc of humanity. Um, I think it's hard to to make that judgment because we don't know the full story. You know, we don't have a complete history. We have all these wisps and myths and everything. So I think much like when we look at any larger group of people today, you know, we can make gross generalizations about, you know, people from specific 
regions of the world or ethnicities or jobs or whatever it may be. And, you know, we can and that can be accurate to what we think the story is. But I think that would be grossly inappropriate and not helpful to the tale. So I think in the end, we have to kind of judge our individual interactions and the stories that we do know to try to understand, well, you know, does that seem like a helpful story? Knowing someone's story to the best of my abilities is somebody I want to get to know. Is it somebody I want to interact with? Do I want to make a judgment for myself or do I want to believe the rumors? Because I think in the end, all the myths that we have are just rumors, you know, and also the idea of the distinct possibility that individuals from a particular group of spirits might not all have the same agenda. They might not all have the same intentions, good and bad. Um, and it might not necessarily be, you know, a war between the spirits or a war between the aliens or, or whatever it may be. Um, it may be just much more about, you know, individual relationships and taking things as we have them. When we think of the whole optimistic and pessimistic view and, you know, will we have a Babylon 5, Star Trek kind of world where we, you know, evolve and, and we're slowly progressing onward or, you know, is this fragile world going to be destroyed and, you know, we're kind of on the whims of the planet and the whims of forces that we can't control. I think the answer to looking at both of those perspectives is yes. You know, when we think of the mysteries, the mysteries are found in paradox. Both of those things can be true. I think sometimes we need to get out of the human perspective of, of what we think is good and look at it from the view of consciousness. As initiates of the mysteries, I think consciousness always survives on some level. Energy always survives on some level. Energy is always constantly changing and going forward. And, you know, do I need to be attached to human civilization? Do I need to be attached to this body? Do I need to be attached to you know, my ideas or my thoughts or my traditions going forward? Do I have to be attached to my family going forward? And when you look at it from a realm of pure consciousness, I don't know if any of those things are necessarily good. Um, it's really kind of looking at the the paradox of consciousness survives and, you know, everything is a grand experiment and everything is a chance of play and manifestation. Will the earth go on? Most likely until it doesn't, you know, and will the solar system go on? Most likely till it doesn't. Will the universe go on? Well, most likely till it doesn't. Um, and then something else happens, you know, so I think sometimes we get very caught in this human perspective and the the hope or the inevitability that humans will continue on. I think the truth of it is, you know, from a mythic and as we understand geology and, and archaeology and all our ologies today is that, you know, we go through periods of rise and fall, just like the seasons. Um, thus far, if we've kind of gone on to a greater universe, we don't have a history of it. Maybe we've already done it or maybe we haven't, you know, but I think. Part of that is the exploration and the fun of it and not necessarily being attached, even in times that are awful and political unrest and, and a lot of victimization. In the end, you know, it's really looking at it from that perspective of consciousness. And then just at this moment, what is my job at this moment? What is my will at this moment? What is my heart? You know, what am I here to do? And, you know, as a magical practitioner, if I'm encountering an otherworldly being and my will and my soul says, yes, encounter this and, and talk with it. And there's something here for you. I'm going to do that. You know, I might evaluate later. Ooh, that was a big waste of time. You know, and I've had that. I've, I've talked to spirits and, you know, in my channeling days, done more of the channeling work and been like, ooh, that spirit was like a person just trying to get attention from me. And, you know, it was telling me a story and maybe they were an alien. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were from Atlantis. Maybe they weren't. But they didn't say anything important. And maybe for me, it was just the compassion of witnessing that spirit that wanted to be important at that moment. And who knows what that spirit story was, but I don't want to do that all day. You know, just like there's many times you'll sit with somebody and hear their story and it might be difficult for you to hear the story or it might be something you don't necessarily want to hear at that moment because you think you've got other things to do. But in that moment of compassion, you listen and you, you be present fully. Um, and then you might evaluate 
evaluate later. Oh, is this something I want to do again? Or how do I want to do it? Or what's the boundary to it? And I think as spirit workers, that's the big thing, negotiating our boundaries, negotiating our agreements, negotiating what's appropriate in that moment. Um, but in the end, stepping out of our human-centric view and, and just realizing it's all consciousness and it's all moving towards something and you know, just exploring the ride and enjoying that ride of it. I know it's hard to think of from a human perspective. You know, I'm, I'm attached to this body, I'm attached to this planet, I'm attached to our cultures and our languages and our music and love to see all of that kind of evolve and go forward. But if it doesn't, you know, is that bad? From a cosmic perspective, maybe not. Maybe it's just what's next. like it's time to wrap it up for this episode but there is more modern witch if you know where to look check out modernwitch.com for the latest happenings across all platforms like the blog youtube patreon and social media there is always something happening like my new show on instagram modern witch after dark where i get to talk about weird shit like aliens and mushrooms with some of today's most influential occultists did you know that modern witch also offers a subscription box through patreon where in addition to handmade magical products patrons also get access to monthly workshops and exclusive discord server did you know that i host free movie nights on netflix and youtube for all modern witch followers and listeners yeah modern witch is way more than just the podcast and our community is growing fast follow and find out what you've been missing by visiting modernwitch.com and i'll see you there Forces at work here, dark, incomprehensible forces.